Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello and welcome to day three of our AAIC podcast recordings. I'm Adam Smith and all week I'm here in Los Angeles making these podcasts for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website with new panellists each day discussing their presentations, highlights from the day and what they've seen and heard that's interested them. And I'm looking around at my new panel today. We're joined by Dr. Lucy Sterling from the University of Edinburgh. We've got Robin Brisbane from Alzheimer's Research UK and Thomas, is it all right to call you Tom? Tom, yeah. Tom Doherty from uh, Sinus Health. Sinus Health. Sinus Health. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Very welcome. Um, uh, so first of all, maybe we could start with a little bit of a roundtable to do some introductions. Robin, if maybe you'd like to go first. Sure. So I'm Robin. I'm the Science Communications Manager at Alzheimer's Research UK. Um, so we deal with um, research press, so that's why we're here at the conference to um, send out ALUK comments on the breaking news stories. We're also trying to engage a research audience with the work of ALUK and to provide content for our various social media and digital channels while we're out here. Brilliant. Thanks, Robin. And Lucy. Hi. Uh, I'm Lucy Sterland. I'm an old age psychiatry trainee up in Edinburgh um, and I'm doing a PhD at the moment. So I've taken time out of my training to do a PhD on epidemiology and I'm looking at links between physical multimorbidity, so having multiple chronic conditions, taking multiple medications and links with various brain and mental health outcomes. Thank you very much. Ashley, you're uh, having ad- advanced sight of your biographies for both you and Tom. I thought you both had really quite interesting career paths mm. compared to many of our other um, early career researchers that join us because you've done you come at this from clinical first that's right yeah. aren't you supposed to wait till you finish before you go into research <laughs> 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 you just, well, did you get bored in the middle <laughs> you... so the best time um, because that's so I'm halfway through my uh, higher training in old age psychiatry and the way that the funding programs work is they want to train you when you're still within the training so is, to, to so is it a clinical so it's a clinical research yeah oh, okay it's a clinical research fellowship that I'm yeah. fantastic and how about you Tom yeah so my name's Tom Doherty I'm uh, part of the cognition team on the Azai mission AD Ellen Becker stat based inhibitor trials um, we are trying to find a therapeutic that actually works um, my role is essentially finding the right people to come into the trial so my me and my team also look at um, cognitive endpoints for screening um, and also looking at how we can better pre-screen the subjects uh, through conversations and dialogues with PIs um, and the sponsors. Brilliant. And and you're an early yeah. career researcher yourself, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So also on the sides, just uh, doing a casual part-time PhD as well. Um, <laughs> Just because I didn't think it was full time enough. Yeah. And that, that's back to front though, because you're supposed to go to industry after your yeah, PhD. That was when the first bit of advice I got given. So you sold out early. Yeah, <laughs> I saw the money. Hold on, hold on. We, <laughs> sure, I'm not really allowed to say selling out. Are we? Moving that's to industry is a very interesting career path, and I think it should be a topic for a podcast in future. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's um, it's certainly different to academia, that's for sure. Um, in what way? Um, it's a lot faster paced. You're expected to do a lot more, a lot a lot quicker. Um, I've always had a sort of passion for actually looking at the drugs that are used in certain therapeutic areas. So I kind of had a bit of a weird um, background into getting into it. So I started off, uh, I did a master's up in Sheffield Hallam uh, in cognitive neuroscience, ended up publishing on cognition on a a new endpoint. 
Um, I then ended up working for a cognition company in the academic department, then moved into their pharma team where I found my love for Alzheimer's um, and interest and sort of went from there. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, everybody, and thank you for taking time out and skipping the last session to join us. I know some of you <laughs> told me you're keen to get off and get to the next <laughs> session. Yesterday's podcast ran to about 40 minutes, so apologies for anybody who we, we, we made tired yesterday, but today's, honestly, we're going to keep to time. It'll be there on the ball. Um, I was planning to ask all of you if you've been to any of the ECR sessions and then chatting on the way here. I know none of you have. So, uh, do you know what? I still feel the need to point this out because I think one of the things we've seen from Alzheimer's Association is they've been really fantastic at trying to support more early career researchers. And um, you can see that throughout the event, both in terms of these lunchtime ask sessions where they bring senior people in for, for early career researchers to ask questions of. There's lots of extra seminars on um, just for early career researchers. The room we're sat in now is used for training sessions on a lunchtime. Lucy, you 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 have benefited. You said you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were uh, free headshots for students going on today, so I thought, why not get, go. get a new headshot? Free headshots. There's a room just for early career researchers where I believe the snacks are free. Yes. Free uh, if you coffee. turn out to be any, like any of the other academics I deal with, that'll be a headshot for the next 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Never yeah. aging. Yeah. Even when you're 60. That's yeah. <laughs> had some work done. Um, and, and we know, um, I think we've got Oz Ismail joining us tomorrow who's been a previous iStar and uh, conference volunteer. I know he's uh, kind of big... Uh, supporter of that and encourages other people to do the same so uh, honestly I think there's lots here for everybody and um, they were talking today that next year's conference of course is going to be in Amsterdam which I think for those 50% of our listeners that are in the UK hopefully that will make this conference far more accessible and affordable for everybody to go to um, yeah. uh, um, when it's just just across the uh, in Europe. Mm. So do you know what proportion of attendees or speakers are actually early career researchers? I don't. Do they tell you that? Do you know, we, I don't think they have, but we've having looked around, you can't help but help but notice that suddenly I feel quite old and I'm in my 40s. <laughs> um, that there's a lot of young people here, aren't there? This is the first one I've been to where it's actually felt like I wasn't in the minority by being under... 40, we say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we've talked about this a couple of times now in that I think I started coming to this conference about seven, six, seven years ago and then you could t- it was kind of a lot of older men particularly um, and I think in that time we've seen now they were talking about yesterday is half of the people here, more than half of the people here are yes, women and I'd be, I really would be interested in seeing that breakdown of how many people are, you know, early 20s to early 30s, 30s, 40s, 40s, 50s. Anyway, thank you very much again for joining us and um, really do consider this if you're an early career researcher. Uh, so be, I say, well, let's just let's move through this and talk about who, I was going to say hands up if you've been delivering, <laughs> hands up if you've been delivering a presentation. Uh, yeah, everybody's got their hands up. Lucy, have you been doing a talk or a post or anything? To- um, I'm giving a talk tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. On Wednesday, yeah. So given that nobody will be hearing this until tomorrow, do you want to give us, do you want to tell us what yeah, you're presenting sure. about? Yes, yeah, sneak peek of my research. So I've got a 15 minute slot and an epidemiology session at the end of the day tomorrow. So um I'm not sure how many people will be coming, but I don't think it'll be very big. <laughs> um, my work. You'd be surprised. Yeah. I've, everybody seems to be happy to stay till the end sessions, yeah. Yeah. apart from on Sunday when they have the welcome evening. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So my work is looking at um, people with multiple chronic conditions and amyloid on CSF. So I've used data from EPAD, which is the European Prevention of Alzheimer's Dementia Consortium. Um, it's the first 500 people's data. So I've just done a cross-sectional analysis 
um, looking at having multiple chronic conditions and CSF amyloid. And we, we found a surprising result. So we know that in people with dementia who have clinical dementia, if you look at population studies, the vast majority of those people will have more than two other conditions. So 82% of people with dementia have at least two other conditions. Um, but so, so we were expecting well, amyloid would probably be related to having multiple conditions. We expect it probably would be. But we actually found the opposite. So the more chronic conditions you had, the less likely you were to be amyloid positive on CSF. So were there other sort of pathologies involved with that, was it? So that's what we suspect, yeah. But, Sorry, uh, other yeah. biomarkers, not pathologies. So or, tau and... Yeah, or it could be vascular. So okay. it, the limitations of doing the cross-sectional research on this is just very much... We can only say what we found in... Um, we can't infer causality or anything else. Um, but it did make us think, well, so maybe maybe multimorbidity and amyloid... You know, maybe amyloid isn't on that pathway between multimorbidity and dementia. And maybe it's that, you know, the amyloid we know is related to Alzheimer's disease, but maybe the development into clinical dementia has more to do with other things, um, multimorbidity, other pathologies. So interesting stuff. It I'm is. Sure we check it out. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're in silence slightly soon because I'm trying to think. <laughs> I like to think about the implications of that. Well, oh, we can't really say we no, advise you, you get yeah. as many conditions as you can to prevent being <laughs> amyloid positive. Is it that, are those those other conditions likely to have kind of had a caused a low mortality rate? So if they've managed to live as long with their diabetes or their other conditions it that could, they have, yeah, it could be. And EPAD's healthy volunteers, so um, it's always there's always that difficulty that you've got people who are people were excluded from the study if they had a, ma- a really major physical health problem um, or any contraindication to having a lumbar puncture so you end up with healthy volunteers and they are relatively young as well the mean age is 66 so for people with that yeah with dementia it's pretty young so That's what are true. the most common comorbidities for people with dementia it's like diabetes and hearing loss and yeah in in this so in this cohort the most common was hypertension mm. um followed by cancers but they're probably historical thyroid depression diabetes but yes in um in the general population it's often vascular things so you wonder yes how much of it's to do with multiple pathologies so it is interesting i was just going to say on that note do you think that potentially looking at the sort of atm framework that mm-hmm. a lot of the neurodegeneration markers may infer a bit more information on the cohort yeah yeah, so one of the previous studies that we... So the, the work that I'm doing is uh, in press as a paper as well, and one okay. of the previous studies that we cited um, found that amyloid on neuroimaging and multimorbidity would be associated if there was a neurodegeneration marker as well. Okay. So it, doesn't, it didn't seem to be associated on its own, but when you start adding in other things, it is. Yeah. And I'm a participant in Prevent. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe I should be worried. Has Prevent been around long enough that you're seeing people who went into it without memory problems now having come for their follow-ups and having got one in the meantime? I don't think the Prevent follow-up data are out yet. You guess I don't Well, they follow-up, is it two-year follow-ups? It's every two years. Yeah. yeah. So I guess... I've only seen the data from the first... I've only had one follow-up and I think I was in the first year. So I guess, yeah, it's a bit still early days. Yeah. But Prevent follow-up data is coming out later this year. Fantastic. Um, what about you, Tom? You've been yes, presenting so as well. I had a poster on Sunday morning, so straight off, right out of the block in the conference. Um, 
my sort of research was based around a trial that I'm working on. So we had about 11,000 subjects, so quite a rich data set. Um, and we were sort of interested in what the cognitive profile across the regions were. So um, it was literally name a country we were, we have a site there. Um, so what we found actually is um, in North America, essentially West, the Western world, um, as you would expect with the prodromal sort of MCI population, um, the memory impairment on the episodic memory task that we used was a lot uh, less impaired compared to the rest of the world, significantly so. Um, when we looked at the MMSC, the South uh, America region was essentially the worst um, in ISLT, but they had the highest um, mean distributed um, MMSE score, so a bit of a dichotomy, we're not sure why that may be, but um, an interesting finding nonetheless. And then when we went to the CDR, so the primary endpoint in most clinical trials now, um, Japan and APAC had the sort of lowest summer boxes, which we think is indicating sort of cultural um, biases towards um, sort of that region in terms of subjects, not so much subjects, but study partners uh, tend to, it's a very different mindset in terms of a lot of families feel the need to look after their own and not put a lot of pressure on a doctor. They think that they can deal with it a lot of the time. So um, they tend to, we think, underestimate the impairment somewhat. Um, just to add, this is not the recruited part. Of, this Cover is not the people as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is not the uh, enrolled population. This is just the screened population. So this includes screen fails and randomised patients. Although the there was a the epid, which we're going to come on to talk about the epidemiology uh, presentation. Also talked about uh, American Asian communities having the lowest uh, incident rate, wasn't it, by quite a significant proportion. That's fantastic. Did you get a lot of interest? Was this I, well? I had more interested on people asking me about the state of the base inhibitor field. So, <laughs> um, why we're still going and what how are drugs different essentially? So, it was quite interesting actually. It's quite fun to essentially bat away the questions with some some science. <laughs> well, actually, uh, what's the state of the base inhibitor field? <laughs> you, you want me to go there? Again? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, for the listeners, so. Um, for those not familiar with um, sort of clinical trials and AD, um, beta secretase is essentially one of the cleavage uh, enzymes that um, we think is plays a causal role um, in the accumulation of amyloid. So this compound, this class of compounds, um, essentially inhibit uh, this um, cleavage. Um, and essentially, the premise of the hypothesis is it arrests the buildup of amyloid to a degree. So in terms of the other compounds that have failed, um, so I think there were six or seven compounds that have um, gone into phase three over the past four or five years. Um, the one I'm working on is the only one left. Um, they have all stopped for different reasons, which I think is really important. Um, there's a lot of different safety profiles across all of them. Um, needless to say, we have a completely uh, clear safety profile. The, there is no uh, worsening of cognition, which has been found on two of the other base inhibitors. Um, we haven't got any liver toxicity um, in terms of skin rash or uh, lymphocytopenia. Um, and there were two others that were stopped for futility early on. So we haven't seen this. Um, 
we're basing the fact that they're slightly different upon a number of factors. Um, a lot of them hammer the target. So they reduce um, CSFA beta by up to 90%, uh, whereas ours is a lot lower. Um, and also the selectivity for base one and base two. So base two is essentially um, a lot of off-target side effect profiles that we've seen with the other compounds, which we haven't seen with ours. So the, the selectivity is uh, another issue there. But we'll be continuing until it's finished. Um, we've just been put into the A3 prevention trial in the US um, to replace the other ones that have failed. So that's always a positive sign uh, when the NIH is funding it. Or I can't remember the acronym in the US, but it's similar, I think. Is that put it on the track as well for being fast-tracked if... Yeah. I think yeah. so, yeah, yeah. But that's in preclinical, whereas the prodromal trials that I'm working on are still being funded solely by Azi and Biogen. But yeah, that's uh, that's as brief as I can be. I think. <laughs> no, I, I think that's interesting. I think. Uh, I mean, obviously, most of our listeners are really career researchers, but I think we know that they keep an eye on the news, even if this isn't their field, because we do have everybody that works from you know care in dementia, and and these are questions that they're they're dealing with, you know, with with people living with dementia every day so being able to answer questions about where we're at with drug trials and things are interesting it's Brilliant. still worth putting them into a drug trial <laughs> don't, don't be and you can do that via joint dementia research <laughs> in the uk which, which or great. in trial match in the us or, or you know the various other cohorts around the world thank you very much tom uh so the morning sessions i didn't make as i was busy doing emails and and getting this podcast out there um but there were the this morning was emerging concepts and i think there was uh, a session on infection and something on early detection so um robin you went to the um to the infection i did uh, yeah i went to the infection discussion and it was really interesting i always see this as quite a contentious uh, topic in the dementia research community so i work in the press team at alzheimer's research uk and every so often the, the press will get wind of this sort of issue and then we, we are tasked with trying to say something sensible about it. Um, and the same people appear commenting on these, on these stories and people do seem to have some quite invested views on this topic. Um, but it was, it was a very civil debate, uh, very good-natured, and um, I, I find that I... I believe whoever the last person was to tell me something. <laughs> so, so it, it so all sounds are, very plausible, right? Yeah. And, uh, so what are the two sides of that argument? Well, essentially that um, infections, whether they be bacterial, viral, or, or fungal infections, somehow um, seed amyloid um, deposition in the brain. And there's this idea that A-beta is actually um, a, a mechanism, but you know, not, it's not just this functionless byproduct of... Um, of, of misprocessing, but it actually has a function in terms of entrapping um, in, infections in, in the brain. Uh, and there's some pretty, you know, uh, pretty good associative data now, I think, where um, things like the uh, herpes virus is co-localized co with um, amyloid deposition in the, in the brain. So I think there's, there is some quite strong circumstantial evidence, but there are many different reasons why that might be the case. And those alternative views were put forward by the uh, by the opposing side. Did anyone <laughs> say anything about the gum disease hypothesis? Oh yeah, gingivitis. Yeah, yeah. It actually mostly focused on on herpes, but there was was some mention of gum disease in the session. Um, and I understand that uh, 
there's, there's more more to come on that tomorrow as opposed to on that yeah, some, presume, sorry. Uh, yeah. tomorrow and uh, God, wouldn't that be awful 10 years online you know 20 years online you just find gum disease yeah. is the, the main core of alzheimer's absolutely i mean i'm sounding ridiculous but but you know <laughs> stranger things have happened um, that sounds that sounds good. Um, thanks, Robin. Uh, what about Tom? What did you go to this morning? Yeah, sure. So I went to a session on early detection and diagnosis. So it's looking at sort of more preclinical um, prodromal endpoints in cognition. So there was a really interesting talk by Philip Shelton's about um, one of the cohorts they have in Amsterdam, um, looking at the ATN framework, but looking at it from a clinical care point of view. Um, so they had about 700 subjects in total that he presented data on and of those 18% had uh, subjective cognitive decline so um, no sorry they all had some some form of subjective cognitive decline but 18% of them had AD positive biomarkers so A plus um, and then T or N regardless whatever they were um, and what they what he showed as well was um, in terms of all comers to the memory clinic they a great cost to them and to be quite commended I think that they essentially put everyone through a PET scan uh, and CSF and of all comers to the memory clinic uh, 49% were amyloid positive um, but interestingly that still means the majority of the people coming do not have Alzheimer's pathology so kind of tying in with what you were saying um, Lucy about um, sort of comorbidities just there is just such a wide spectrum if you look in the sort of clinical community care settings. Fantastic. Anybody got any questions on that one? That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Put everybody on the spot. Come on, think of a question. You know, those stunned faces after the end. <laughs> we talked about this yesterday. You really sh don't be shy. Uh, fantastic. So actually, did you come to our conference, Adam? Did you come to our, um, our early detection debate at our conference? Quite a similar session. Uh, I don't think I did. I, I didn't buy a ticket. Oh, we uh, didn't let you in? No. <laughs> I, I was allowed to come, but I was only allowed to sit outside and talk about dementia research oh, right. to ECRs. I was, yeah, I was just going to mention... Cause I didn't have the right coloured lanyard. Yes, yes, security would have turned you away. <laughs> uh, if, uh, just get out of that if you were trying to put me on the spot there. <laughs> um, we can move on to that in microglia. I did sit, where I did sit through a... A podcast, and we're going to talk about Michael Clear next. <laughs> but <laughs> so don't question me on that one either. Um, but there was there was questions that the audience raised about um, the utility of early early detection when we don't have um, until your work is done on your base inhibitor. We don't well, have yeah. <laughs> uh, effective treatments. That did that topic come up at all during the during the discussion? Not not oh, actually. Okay. No. Interesting. Um, it is a fair point to be honest. Mm. Um, what is the point in telling people that they have? An incurable disease. Well, we we talked about it yesterday. So this the potential for the combinations of biomarkers to then uh, allow you to predict earlier, which is fantastic because then it, it generates a group of people for you to maybe involve in your research studies, yeah. or that you can target more, or that you can follow through. But uh, in terms of uh, until you've got something to to offer those people by way of a treatment, it's it's great. But that work then has to run in parallel with with the efforts to prevent or treat. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's definitely a, a quite a wide breadth of options for people. Even if they do have an early diagnosis, there's plenty out there in a the scientific community for them to be getting involved in that can potentially help. Yeah, yeah. And also, in the here and now, take more of an interest in what you can do to 
to to slow cognitive decline through lifestyle changes. Definitely, I think that's yeah. an immediate. Absolutely, thing I was talking to somebody do. earlier who was doing some. Um, they'd done some research in Canada looking at um, exercise programs in rural communities in Canada, and they were presenting to suggest that that um, improving physical activity uh, post diagnosis actually seemed to to give you a better quality of life and potentially delay um, the onset of the symptom. What's the tagline? It's good, what's good for your heart? It's good for your brain. Essentially. Oh, do you know what though? I mean, that's the same thing, isn't it? Though? These are the same things we should all be doing now, sat around the table to avoid heart disease and yeah, diabetes exactly. and everything else. Anyway, um, okay, so let's move on to the two sessions that were in the big room, um, which was uh, Shane Lidlow from NYU was collecting the Grun... Oh, here we go. <laughs> the Grunka uh, Iqbal... Iqbal? Yeah. award so. um, uh, for that was talking about his uh, lab's work on microglia and astrocytes which was fascinating I mean he was engaging wasn't he I yeah. think he's been everybody's I've read this on Twitter he was everybody's favorite speaker today that's how you hold a room he kind of yeah. how old, how old do, do you reckon he is yeah, he must be early early 40s late 30s yeah uh, 30s Australian quite dynamic yeah. quite you know did things the right way thanked all his team yeah. Right at the start, not at the end. Very self-deprecating as well, which is yep. always, always funny in a big audience. I think. Yeah, he, he was um, really good. So he he didn't. Pres- I mean, he didn't present a specific thing, did he? Because I think he was accepting his award. He was presenting more about the work that they've been doing. But he did come on at the end to to say what he thought the questions were that they could be uh, answering through uh, astrocytes. A lot of I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so who wants to talk about his talk first? Anybody? I mean, I'm, I'm not a microglia expert. I don't think uh, the right the right teams are similar for that. Do you know what? I, just in case, because knowing that not many of our uh, podcast listeners might necessarily also know what microglia is, even though we did do a podcast on microglia uh, a few weeks ago, I did take a little photograph of somebody's poster that explains it. So uh, unless somebody wants to have a go at explaining what microglia are, oh, God, we're so thick, aren't we? Um, I, I can read out what I... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just the immune response in your in your brain, essentially. They're uh, they're cells that um, support uh, homeostasis of of neurons. Um, I think what um, God, I've forgotten his name. What, who who was the guy? Ludlow. Uh, yeah, uh, Shane. Shane Ludlow. Shane, he's yeah. Australian, of course. <laughs> I think it's Nick Widlow. No, it's, it's Lid- Lidlow. 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 Um, he he was talking primarily about astrocytes, which are a type of. Um, another type of um, immune, immune cells in the brain um, and, and how that interacted with the pathology of Alzheimer's, I think, is kind of the rough idea. But I, I see you've got your, your phone up. I know, it's, it's all right, because I might struggle with some of the pronunciations <laughs> as well. But isn't it, the idea essentially is that they react to Alzheimer's brain changes and that can actually contribute to... Yeah, to it can speed down, up the, the pathological decline, I think. Yeah, so so really engaging speaker, um, held the room, presented very much like a TEDx. This was like very a TED, so, yeah. like a TED talk. Um, His slides went down and he just kept going, couldn't stop him. That's right. And the slides were interesting. They weren't just, you know, bullet points or graphs you couldn't read or yeah. pictures that, that were highlighting something. <laughs> academics seem to choose to use. <laughs> so he ended by highlighting what he thought were some unanswered questions. And I, do you know what, though, having listened to that microglia podcast, cast that I was there while it was being recorded and having because Michael Lear was a big topic at your conference Robin at ARUK this year as well how would you know you weren't let in I, but, <laughs> but I talked to I know that there are people at Edinburgh particularly are looking at Michael Lear through the the uh, 
the DRI there um, are looking at that. And I get a sense of that there are a lot of questions in this. People are convinced that this is particularly important, but there are a lot of questions. And that's what uh, Shin highlighted. Uh, so his questions that he highlighted were, um, what is a reactive astrocyte? Uh, and that they're still finding out, but they know that there are at least two different types. Uh, what are the molecular triggers or function, functional consequences? Uh, what features distinguish a reactive astrocyte from a non-reactive? Uh, they think they've got a good idea, but they're hampered by not having very good resting versus reactive astrocyte cultures. Cultures was important as well, didn't he? he talked at the, at the start about the importance of... Yeah, it seems like he spent a, a number of years trying to perfect that and actually going back through the literature, which is kind of quite a key point I think I took away from that, was he was still quoting research from the 70s in his in his plenary, um, which kind of speaks to sort of... Um, that willingness to go back. The longevity, yeah, and actually looking through the literature, even at his sort of seniority. Actually, it's funny enough, when we were talking about collaborations, we were, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, about wouldn't it be great if you just picked every, a third of the people up from this conference and sent them off to a, an entirely different disease area conference? Just for a year, just have a year of going to conferences from completely different disease areas just to maybe inspire you or start to make some of those connections that we otherwise don't instead of going to a conference that's full of people like you researching things that you're looking at, duplicating effort when you could go off and just, you know, spread your wings. You're going to fund it, are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe uh, ARUK would like to, to yeah. have a think about that. I wouldn't like to make any commitments <laughs> right now. But we do okay. have interdisciplinary research grants that, to try and uh, address this very issue, get people from outside the field working on dementia. Um, more plugs to follow. That, and I think that's, that's a really great idea. Uh, are you, are you, and you're, you lead that, I think. Nobody else is doing that at the moment, are they? Um, I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, we certainly do. Okay. Uh, he had one more question at the end. Is astro, uh, astroglysis, gliosis. astrogliosis an all or non-process or a graduated one? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? Um, uh, he also ended by giving some advice, didn't he, just to early career researchers and other PIs, which was a bit of a takeaway. Um, the biggest cheer of the, the week, I yeah, think, from was, that. Wasn't it? it was very, uh, yeah, very uplifting, actually. I think he'll be a person to watch in future. And I've made a note. His his name on Twitter is uh, Lidl at L I D D E L O W S A. So at Lidl O S A. I hope he appreciates the big plug we've just given him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well done. Um, uh, if you do happen to be listening, Shane, well done. Congratulations yeah. on your award, and we really enjoyed your talk. The next talk was uh, Rachel Whitmer from UC Davis School of Medicine talking about epidemiology, and, and I'm going to come to you now, Lucy. Um, in fact, can I just sit back? And <laughs> well, well, Lucy, uh, over to you. Tell so, us about... <laughs> so Rachel Whitmer, the title of her talk was The Epidemiology of Diversity in Dementia, um, and she, she was, I think, again, quite good for a plenary, was just giving a summary of what is out there and what the important issues are in diversity rather than presenting brand new findings on a specific topic um, and I thought she did a great job of making it accessible but then I'm, I, I'm an epidemiologist so <laughs> it's accessible to me um, but when she yeah so she's part of a team at, at UC Davis that focus on trying to reduce inequities in brain aging research so um, looking at making sure that demographics are uh, represented in different studies um, and I think a lot of the main the main areas where she was talking about was um, ethnicity and race 
um, and really making sure that in their studies they focus on um, adjusting for that or making sure that people from different races and ethnicities are included because quite often you know white Caucasian is the default and things as you said earlier um, the rates of dementia are much lower in what they call Asian Americans which I think we would probably call Southeast Asians um, and and much higher in African Americans but is that to do with where they've been picked up in the trajectory is it to do with other issues like um, early life factors so she she had lots of compelling things to say about the the powers of inclusion yeah I think when you get to sort of the early age for Alzheimer's it's certainly a very family orientated approach to whether you're going to seek advice or, or not mm-hmm. per se um, but yeah you're right yeah should you, I mean, she wasn't presenting any particular research, was she? It was no. more about um, the, the field at the moment, yeah. although I picked up on four particular points she made, um, which was African-Americans had a higher rate of dementia but no faster oh. decline. Mm. Um, and could that be explained through the recruitment or study design or is it is it the disease um, that 190,000 lives of Americans could be saved if they had the same uh, dementia rates as Asian-Americans? That's slightly adding up the numbers there, but that is to suggest then, I guess, that Asian Americans had a lower, uh, lower rates. Although, again, this is epidemiology. That could be because they're not very good at diagnosing in that community. Yeah. You mentioned before yeah, that they're well, quite they're good not, at hiding the symptoms yeah, and covering. Approach your doctor. Family members covering for each other. I suppose there's lots of explanations. And, and my colleagues hate me for this because I'm really good at picking up on the, yes, but what about this? <laughs> what about that? Uh, I'm awful for that. Um, what else did she say? That um, 9.6 times more common of a... You were 9.6 times more likely to develop AD if you were born in a high-risk stroke state. By state, I assume she means yeah. states that have more stro- people have mm. strokes. Okay, not as in a state of stroke. No, no, no. the states that have got bad reputations for having stroke, which I guess could be for lots of well, Dietary reasons. reasons, I would have thought, yeah. Yeah, although even in the UK, stroke rates have just been there because things like we're better at quickly prescribing busting the stroke-busting drugs and having the centres better located mm-hmm. to people responding to these things more. So I don't know if it classes as a stroke if you if you initially report the symptoms but then treat it quickly. I don't know. One for our NHS colleagues. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm well, looking I across at Lucy, <laughs> who is a, an SPR. Are you an SPR? Yes, You're an SPR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it would still count as a stroke, if it, even if it was caught quickly. But it might be that the long-term consequences are better managed. So people have still have strokes, but recover more quickly. Or Well, hopefully. smoking, isn't it? Uh, the stopping uh, smoking has made a massive difference to mm-hmm. smoking cessation rates. Um, and there's probably an ICD-10 code for the start and the end. I Anyway, uh, so that was fantastic. She had some takeaways at the end that they were a bit vaguer. I've got them here. If you if you didn't make if you didn't write them, well, down. I like the thing she said at the beginning about epidemiology. So she said, ah, yes. um, Go on. she had some key messages. Yeah, I was, I was disappointed she didn't put the slide up again at the end. But uh, she thought that life course science was essential. So looking at factors across the life course, not just in later life, um, and pointed out that understanding brain health is as important as dementia and neurodegeneration and actually seeing it more about health um she called epidemiology the basic science of public health which i quite liked 
and said it was more than simple counting, which <laughs> made me feel better about my PhD, <laughs> which I think is just fancy counting. And you, you, I expect to see that in a slide from Lucy soon. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much for talking about those main sessions. Um, we're at, um, we've gone over half an hour now, so um, we've only got a little bit of time left, but I will go around now and just ask if there's any other particular uh, talks or presentations you've seen today that you wanted to mention. How about you, Robin? Um, nothing today that really stands out, but I did go to a good one about precision medicine uh, yesterday, I think it was, and uh, that, that really caught my interest. So you can have these, uh, you know, a metabolic subtype of, of, of Alzheimer's and an inflammation subtype and a depressive subtype, and there might be, you know, targeted treatments for those particular subtypes. It's quite a beguiling idea. I don't know, you know, if the science is, is really there yet, but you can imagine that... Um, it could have big implications for treatment. Uh, and that's what James Quinn, for those who listened to Mon Sundays, Mondays, uh, day one's podcast, James <laughs> Quinn's talking about that, because I think that's his, uh, the area of work where he's gone off to, uh, to Harvard to look at that is precision medicine and, you know, tailoring uh, drugs and combinations of drugs to individual people and trialing them for short periods of time and then moving on and in individuals rather than applying this to cohorts or groups, which is quite an expensive and, I guess, long way around going to it. But, hey, it's, it's a good idea. Thanks, Robin. How about you, Lucy? I actually saw an interesting poster that related to things that were talked about in the epidemiology um, diversity talk. Um, it was from Karen Anstey. So it was, an, I think, a collaboration between Australian and Newcastle researchers. And they'd done a meta-analysis of systematic reviews of risk factors for dementia. And they had these two maps of the world with different colours on about which areas were underrepresented. And so looking at even in systematic reviews, which you think are oh, great, we've looked at all the, um, all the research that's out there and, and synthesised it all. Actually, if that research only takes place in the UK, Europe, America, they're still missing out. Um, Asia, Africa was just red on both of the pictures. There was very little research um, and, and then Australasia as well. So I thought that was really interesting to look. And they, they listed each of the risk factors and said, these are limitations in the research of each risk factor, um, which would be really, really good for directing future research in that area. Yeah, uh, you can see that. Um, there are just so many posters, aren't there? Honestly, yeah. I, I, you, you get your steps in, yeah. walking <laughs> up and down the poster boards. There's over 500 posters each yeah. day. And trying to find time, I think you all you can do is go through the list and, and make your... Or you whip around with your camera phone, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And take photos yeah. and look at them on the plane on the way home. If you ever present, you need to uh, make sure the title's snappy, is presented well, otherwise people will just walk past. Well, have you... I'm, I'm sure lots of our ECRs, because we've done sessions on talking about poster design before, but there's some YouTube videos going around I've seen on okay. social media of how to design a new style poster where you put your... Your takeaway messaging, big, Straight in the middle. big fat yeah. letters in middle, maybe with a, a, a code for scanning and then yeah. your notes down the side. Those, and there are some yeah, people yeah. have really used that, that yeah. style here. Always emphasize your conclusions. That's, that's I, I, my advice. Do you know what? They stand out from the crowd. And if you can do something that at least lets somebody who's got 20 seconds to read your poster take a message away and yeah. snap a picture, that's a good. I think the biggest innovation in, in posters is the uh, proliferation of the fabric. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which are usually on the floor next to the poster boards not actually so on the boards be, you go to an airport for a conference like this you can see all the researchers because they've all got big poster tubes but now they just blend into Fold the crowd in. <laughs> yeah. well and they're various in size because the poster boards at this conference are huge and so 
you know, you're told to bring a landscape, but people can bring yeah, a portrait. Yeah, you can see the people still... that haven't read the dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> There's <laughs> some overlapping. Tiny yeah. little A1 size fitting in. I and think the I saw thing. a PowerPoint presentation printed out as well at one point. <laughs> and just pinned up. When I... yeah. well, maybe they lost their poster. Well, it got... yeah. What about you, Tom? Uh, last but not least, what yeah, have you seen so today? I, it's, it's another one from this morning's session. So there was a really nice presentation, I thought, on um, what's a new sort of cognitive endpoint uh, of King's College called it's not a very snappy title, I must say, but it's called the Integrated Cognitive Assessment. Now, this is essentially a um, animal semantic recognition task where you're displayed an image for 100 milliseconds followed by a few distractors. Then you're asked to recall whether you saw an animal or it wasn't an animal. So this is kind of used really widely in the MOCA, the ADAS COG, um, MMSE as well, I think. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, and they've essentially shown that this activates the same regions as the early um, deposition of tau. Now, it's all very preliminary data, but I think it's it shows real promise in actually looking at an endpoint that might be, I'm putting my clinical trials hat on here again, uh, for the tau antibodies that are coming through. Um, I think it could show some real promise because when they uh, looked at the rock curves for MCI, they combined it with an EEG measure and it, it, it was about, uh, 0.89 I think it was so not bad in terms of sort of a first in line diagnostic I thought and the next challenge as with so often is translating that into into something a tool that can actually be used and which is yeah. a, where we fall down all too often well exactly they they are actually a company as well I think it was uh, their professors at at King's, but um, oh, started so, their own so there'll be a spin out cognitivity. I think it's yeah, yeah cognitivity. There you go. Oh well, that's that's good. We see spin outs come up into into something yeah. meaningful. It's just a shame. It'd be nice if it wasn't a spin out. Then it could be free, and it's well, more yeah, likely well, to be picked up thing, and adopted. Isn't then, isn't it? Right, I think we're out of time there. Uh, thank you very much for everybody. Um, if anybody wants to contact you, are you all on social media on Twitter? Course, yeah. So, Robin, what's your Twitter name? Let's go with you first. At Robin Brisbane. At Robin Brisbane. Be, uh, born as in from the manor born. B-O-U-R-N-E. Exactly right. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Lucy. I'm at Sterlandia. S-T-I-R-L-A-N-D-I-A. Fantastic. And at Tom Doherty 89. And that's Doherty without a C. Doherty 89. Is that because you were born in 1989? It was. Is that depressing you a little bit? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> 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 and I'm at Better Research. I've still, still got more grey hair than you. It's all good. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much. I'd like to thank our poly, um, panelists, uh, Robin, Lucy, and Tom. Do you all have big plans for this evening? Is there a party going on that I've not invited to? There's a Novartis dinner, but I am going out with a client. Novartis dinner. I could. That sounds like good free food. I could go for some of that. Yeah, see that? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're going to call a time on that podcast today. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review on our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Uh, tell your friends and colleagues. We'll be back here tomorrow to record our fourth and final podcast from the AAIC here in Los Angeles. But in the meantime, if you want to see more reflections on the conference and get the views of, of other people attending, check out their official hashtag, which is ha uh, AAIC19. Thank you very much, everybody, again. And we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you very Thank you. much. Cheers. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.